1: Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. You had to act <laughs> the single a the single lot. lot. Yeah. I was behind the counter. Yeah.
2: Right. Doing business constantly. Uh-huh. Mom stuff.
3: Uh-huh. Disciplining you
2: <laughs> in Maybe. some way. This has
4: been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom?
2: This is Alec Baldwin and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeart Radio. My guests today are two people using media to inspire, inform and transform civic engagement in America. Robert Greenwald is the founder of Brave New Films, a nonprofit whose goal is to educate and mobilize the public on social issues like the prison system and voter suppression. Greenwald was a director of television and film, with projects ranging from the ambitious but poorly received musical Xanadu to the critically acclaimed Burning Bed. The filmmaker then pivoted, turning his talents into real political action. But first, I'm talking to civil rights attorney Scott Heckinger. He's the founder and executive director of Zealous, an organization harnessing the power of storytelling for social justice. Scott Heckinger believes that inaccurate narratives on crime and policing help shape perception and policy, and he's working to change that. Zealous works with public defenders and advocates on campaigns that aim to change a broken criminal justice system and push for true public health and safety. Before Zealous, Heckinger was a public defender, where he saw firsthand the many flaws in our system of mass criminalization. He uses this background to inform media campaigns and get the word out in mainstream outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Atlantic. A recent article by Heckinger in The Nation critiqued the coverage of crime in a post-pandemic world citing both NPR and the New York Times as culprits of sensationalist journalism with his extensive background within the criminal justice system, I asked Scott Heckinger if support for Defund the Police, bail reform, and
5: public defenders is largely drawn over racial lines. I mean, one of the things that I think is perhaps most misunderstood is that not just Black leaders, but Black communities are, right now, are at a place where they, they don't want police and they are, you know, championing decarceration and eager to support less policing, less prosecutions, less prisons as a way to get to public health and safety. So I think we as kind of folks in the movement assume that if you're black, even living in over and over police communities you're just you're gonna be supportive of greater funding for example for public defense. Um, you're gonna be supportive of these kind of policies that I think are important to get us to a better place but it's just not the case. why why? Well, I think Black community members are getting messages from their church. They're getting messages also from the same places where white liberal progressives are getting their information. That's the New York Times, that's CNN, that's New York Post, that's you know media, which is painting a picture of public safety and justice and crime and punishment as good and evil. And they're hearing sensational cases about violence, and they're feeling deeply fearful. And also. They, too, are a product of a popular culture in the United States that paints a deeply misconceived, inaccurate picture of justice, which is that police prevent and solve crime, that prisons keep us safer, that there are good people and evil people, that everyone gets their day in court, that people have trials and juries that render a verdict. So you're saying that an interesting number of people of color,
2: they are viewing things the same way white people do. Yes. That there's a system that's there, and they support that system and view that system in the same way.
5: Yes, and it's kind of compounded by the fact that a lot of folks in Black and brown communities that are over-policed, over-criminalized, are literally facing violence. I mean, violence right. is real. They're hearing right. gunshots. They feel less safe. They feel less safe, and because of the, the culture in which they've grown up, like white folks and the, the culture and the media that they read, there is kind of a universal lack of imagination for what an alternative could look like. And that mixed with fear makes it so that we continue to want to invest, even even despite all the evidence, the contrary, that's not work, that's not working, in police, more police, more prosecutions, more prisons, even though we spend more on this stuff than any other society in the history of the world. And my God, are we not the healthiest and safest. What would you say in the modern world, in your lifetime, uh,
2: what have you noticed? Does it really go back, in my mind, does it go back to Giuliani, Broken Windows, Bratton, uh, that whole thing here in New York, or even across the country? When did it begin where we needed to uh, paramilitarize the police departments?
5: Oh, boy. My initial gut is it goes back to slavery. (laughs) And I don't say that like... Lightly or facetiously. Right. Um, in modern day policing was born out of slave f- patrols. Riker's Island, just as an example, is named after Richard Riker, who was a famous white slave catcher. Um, <sighs> You're kidding me. No. Oh
2: my God, I didn't know that.
5: No, he was the uh, comptroller and, and he was a famous like northern slave catcher who would like catch slaves and sell them down back down south for, for bounty. Um, yeah, that's the place where now thousands of, Predominantly, like ninety-two percent black and brown people are caged, pre-trial, presumed innocent, only because they cannot afford to buy their freedom. This is—it's baked, like racism, harshness, all that stuff—is baked the, into American society, and New York is no different. Policing, though, and in, in prisons, it—it it, so it was always there. I do think, though, that over the last half century, we've seen this combination of politics, media, and and, and fear kind of jumble together to create this formula in favor of greater harshness. It's driven by power. It is driven by prison interests. It's driven by prosecutors. It's driven by police and their talking points. It's enabled by popular culture, all too willing to just repeat these popular narratives and a media that in the best case is just kind of falling on bad habits and practices and relationships that they've built with police and prosecutors as easy sources and kind of being lazy. And worst case really actively, affirmatively trying to help this narrative, but it's put out there and people then they see and they feel like our current system is inevitable. The mass incarceration is inevitable, that imprisoning 2.3 million people is inevitable and it isn't, and it shouldn't be. And we're at this point where we need to topple this imbalance of power and control over criminal policy and media because that control over it and that narrative and that reinforced message is influencing people's basic intuitions. How does Zealous try to change this narrative? In a lot of ways. So we support public defenders, local organizers, people with direct experience locally to harness a range of advocacy skills that public defenders didn't learn in law school and organizers didn't either. So around just social media advocacy, traditional media, new media advocacy, but also kind of more fundamental stuff, like just how to talk about systemic issues in a way that is not legalese, um, that actually can reach more people, how to talk about issues in ways with language and words that don't um, further entrench the status quo. I mean, one of the things about public defenders and public defense, so like Brooklyn uh, Defender Services, where I practiced for close to a decade. Still, 95% of the people who I represented were who were convicted, those convictions came from guilty pleas. And, and the reason for that was just the range of laws and practices that intersected to kind of coerce silence, essentially, like against the truth. And and, and our advocacy tools in court were so limited, right? We were limited to an audience of a judge and a prosecutor who were already predisposed to kind of status quo cruelty. We were limited in terms of the media that we were able to use. It was oral advocacy or written advocacy. we were limited in terms of messenger. It was us doing the talking and language. And so what might it look like to do advocacy, to leverage our perspective and expertise and partnership with communities to tell more compelling stories and more compelling ways to shift the narrative long-term about crime and punishment?
2: When you talk about the media's role in that narrative, the New York Times, they need clicks. And now they have a pretty good subscription base. They're making money. And they report crime in what I would consider a more popular way. When you wrote the article about the Times, what was the lead up to that? What was happening? What were you noticing?
5: I was noticing more of the same. The FBI came out with data about 2020, a most unusual year in in all ways, leading with a once in a you know hundred year global pandemic, and the headline was homicide spike, violence soars around the country. And so most people don't read beyond the headlines, and it wasn't just New York Times doing this. It was NPR, it was Washington Post, it was New York Post. And why? Headlines sell, right? You know, you want to get the clicks. It's a cessational. But I also don't think it's that interesting because the reality is the more interesting stuff actually is if you dig below and what was actually happening. What the data showed was that homicides were increasing Everywhere, universally around the country. Number one, in places that had bail reform, places that which were very few, and most places that didn't. In red and blue states, places that had police pro- uh, p- protests against police violence, and places that didn't. Rural areas, cities, blue, white, red, etc. The lead should have been. This undermines the data that just came out. Undermines years worth of effort by police and prosecutors and prison interests across the country to convince us that any minor modest changes in a direction away from them actually was causing crime because it was universal in places that had some changes and places that didn't. Instead, we hear homicides up. We also don't hear about the fact that In historical context, they're still at historic lows. We also don't hear about the fact that across all other major types of crime, those numbers were universally down. But instead, we get this kind of sensational headline and this kind of mealy-mouthed, kind of two-sides speculation about the potential causes of the increase in homicides. And they allow, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, police and sometimes anonymous police sources to say, well, it could be this. It could be bail reform. It could. Right. It might be low police morale because of protests against them killing people. Policy debate inside of a new, straight news story. Yes. You know? Yeah, but, but when there's, when you know, A, there's not really debate. I mean, I get the fact that people want to know answers. They, and, and this is a key piece. Like, people do want to know, and I get that instinct. Why is crime up? The thing that's unbelievable, you have police out there, and then media very smart journalists from the New York Times and other places taking their word for it and allowing them to like speculate about the causes of crime going up. And yet no one kind of addresses this key point of, okay, wait a second, we're paying you in New York City, $11 billion a year, the the most of any police force in the country, more than most, I would say, countries' armies. And there's still crime at all, let alone rising violence. Right and you're deflecting to something that just started two years ago that actually has been wildly successful, which I can talk about, bail reform. It's this incredible sleight of hand.
2: Scott Heckinger. If you like conversations with dedicated advocates, check out my interview with Ingrid Newkirk from People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals.
1: We went to the Department of Justice to the attorney general's office. And we had very carefully, painstakingly documented how Ringling had allowed this lion to burn to death, basically, in the Mojave Desert. So we went to the DOJ and we said, look, Ringling gets away with this all the time. So that resulted in the biggest fine in U.S. history against a circus.
2: Hear more of my conversation with Ingrid Newkirk at Here'sTheThing.org. After the break, Scott Heckinger breaks down the repercussions of electing former police officer Eric Adams as mayor of New York City.
6: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
1: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing... In 2020, New York State attempted bail reform, a legislative effort that lasted just weeks before the law was changed. I wanted Scott Heckinger to help explain bail reform and the criticisms
5: that led to its diminishment pretend that you don't know anything about bail reform and you're a legislator. Just put yourself there. And I'm coming to you to talk to you about a policy. I'm proposing a policy. And I'm telling you that I can guarantee the following result. That in the next 18 months, 183,000 people who otherwise would have faced jail will be free. will be back with their families. will be in their jobs. will be able to wake up in their own bed. will be able to fight their case for We'll have a shot freedom. at
2: justice. We'll have a
5: shot at justice. Okay. So go start there. On top of that, Will save taxpayers over $650 million. On top of that, I can guarantee that 99% of the people who are released, who otherwise would have faced bail reform, will not be rearrested for any crime of violence, and even less for a crime involving any kind of use of a gun. My, my gut is, you'd look at me like you're over promising and you're being ridiculous, and no way, you're out of your mind. That's what it is. That's what bail reform is. Bail reform in New York, is this enormously successful change for justice, for fiscal responsibility, for fairness, against racism that keeps folks productive. And yet, people think it's a disaster. There's no tie to violent crime. There's no tie to any of this stuff. And here's the it, it, the thing that's amazing about it is the, our leader and our leaders, Governor Hochul, admitted it was, admitted it was a success. The same week she proposed rollbacks that would put 45,000 more people on the path to jail. She wrote an op-ed that laid out exactly what I said. It's been an enormous success and because essentially of politics, because of the, the narrative that's out there. Bail, folks need to understand, first of all, it ain't a, it's not a punishment. It's incentive. It's an idea you pay money to court. You're supposed to then be out. It's incentive to come back to court. No matter what happens at the end of the day, you pay the money back. What we know is that people come back to court overwhelmingly without bail. We know that's true, so we know it's unnecessary. In reality, though, bail is a punishment. Most people who have bail set can't afford to pay it, and they're locked up. And what does jail do? In addition to separating you from all the things, bills bills piling up, people in need of caretaking, what does it do? It actually increases the likelihood that you are going to get rearrested upon release. It's actually, there's this fancy term, criminogenic. It's just basically, here's the reality. The primary characteristics of jail and prison are the exact same as the the prime drivers of violence itself. Isolation, shame, economic deprivation, and violence. And so we wind up throwing a solution at a thing that actually winds up making the thing even worse.
2: I was someone who, I was so supportive of the police even though i have my own criticisms of the police i view the police force as a group of men and women who by and large are doing the job for the right reason and that like a lot of organizations political parties in the country today the leadership of the police department is the issue defund the police is just miserable you want police You need police. All those cliches. You hate the cops until you need one or whatever. So I think that defund the police was a miserable
5: narrative. It was a miserable slogan. You know, I'll say, I actually think it's too soon to say that that was a bad, that was a disaster. Frankly, like, it was incredible that for any period of time, it could have been a day, but that for a period of time, legislators and legislatures around the country were actually talking about divestment and reinvestment in different things outside of the police. It's an important conversation to have. And I think the most interesting models actually are in places like Eugene, Oregon, where they have this program called Cahoots, where social workers are actually sent without armed police. It isn't actually pairing the two because here's the reality. When you have someone in a mental health crisis, perhaps, and I would say even often someone who's dealt with the police before, because of their mental health issues, when a police officer shows up, whether they are the most well-meaning, well-trained, like the the perfect police officer, the one who is not going to use violence, a police officer, is by their nature, they're triggering. They represent a series of really harmful consequences and solutions, which include arrest handcuffing, all the things that you described. It includes, in the best case scenario, potentially an alternative to incarceration with forced mental health treatment or with a threat of prison. And so there's a lot of studies that look at the fact that a police officer showing up at all, even with a social worker, is problematic. And Eugene, Oregon, the Cahoots program shows that social workers showing up who are unarmed, is enormously successful. And in very rare cases, do they ever have to call for backup. And it doesn't lead to, to to more violence. It actually decreases it.
2: So when a police officer became the mayor of New York, I thought, this isn't the best idea. <laughs> I don't think that the, a person who's a police officer should be the mayor. What do you think about Adams becoming mayor?
5: Oh, God. <laughs> He's, it, 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 I'll tell you, it felt like a bit like Trump becoming president, where I knew it was going to be bad, like really bad, and it still far exceeded my expectations in, in badness. I mean, days before Eric Adams beca- officially became mayor, he announced that the first thing he was going to do, that was the number one priority for him, was bringing back, even though it was still there, but like bringing back and reinforcing solitary confinement on Rikers Island. The second thing he did, actually, the first thing he did as, as mayor, was then reject the opinions of over a majority of the city council, who challenged the fact that he was going to be bringing back solitary, and said, "Come back to me if and once you've become had a, the, the experience of being a police officer." So he cast aside the opinions of the majority of city council because they they had not previously served as police. He has pushed for the appointment of uh, two different people for high-level positions in his administration who have deep, long uh, backgrounds uh, with homophobia. He has reinstituted a deeply violent and racist arm of the police force. Which one? It's supposedly set up to try to get guns off the street, but what they wind up doing is terrorize black and brown neighborhoods, making it feel like you're literally imprisoned in your own neighborhood, and they have a long history of violence. But he reinstituted that. It's carceralism, it's hyper-policing, it's Giulianiism all over again.
2: And what he's done is he's jeopardized his—because you you have your article, you you say, the police state is failing officers, too. That was in the nation. The police state is failing officers, too. I cannot uh, more wholeheartedly endorse that idea. And I'm not saying that a police officer can't be a good mayor. It's, it's, it's essential that we get that on the air. I'm not saying that a police officer can't be a good mayor. But sure enough, he comes in there and he does what all modern-day politicians do, which is he just shoves a whole bunch of money toward his friends. He gives the police department a huge budgetary increase at 700, as you reported, $750 million in overtime this year, which I think you reported was a 73% increase in what was was budgeted yep. for this year, $750 million of it, to overtime. Yep. The mayor of this city is somebody who needed to come in and figure out how we're going to spend less money. The city is in a financial crisis. The city has been in a financial crisis. Its expenses are higher, and its income is lower than it's been since the 70s.
5: The budget's around $11 billion a year. In the wake of that, the, sh- the horrible shooting in the subway station where where there was no police to be found or where they were, they were calling 911. It was just a complete disaster. We already have 4,500 police in the subways at a cost of hundreds of millions of dollars every year to fail to prevent something like that. And he then was like, we need 500 more police in the subway or 1,000. But if policing were any other administrative agency, it would have been defunded decades ago. It's the reality. What I do know is modern day policing, the way that we see it right now, it's not helping anyone. Like numbers show that. I'll just say my position is this. I don't hate police. I hate that we continue to actually invest in a failed policy solution proven over half a century. We keep thinking that it's not just investing more, but even the conversation around like training them to somehow like do better, we've tried that out. We've tried to get uh, you know police to have bias training, to like shoot less people, and to be right. more careful. And the reality is modern-day policing in America, by its nature and by its history, is deeply racist, oppressive, and violent. And we know that it fails to prevent crime based upon their own data. And they're sensationally, so stupendously, all the words, bad at solving violent crime as well. What's an example of a successful campaign? So early on in COVID, we get a call from a public defender in Prince George's County, Maryland. There was one court watcher, so a, a formerly incarcerated woman who was in court uh, filing prosecutorial accountability letters uh, to the state's attorney. And this incredible civil rights law firm, Civil Rights Corps, filed a powerful litigation based on 64 sworn declarations from people inside the Prince George's County Jail being held pretrial, describing at risk of retaliation the horrible conditions that they were facing, from no PPE to force being forced to clean up each other's bodily fluids. It was awful. Pay had to pay $4 for medical care. And the judge dismissed those 64 sworn declarations as, quote, unhelpful. And we're like... <laughs> Traditional advocacy ain't working. What can we do? We brought folks together—these these kind of different groups: so local organizers, formerly incarcerated people, and the folks who were currently in, alongside defenders—and came up with this concept. Actually, now I'm talking about it. You were involved in it, Alec. It was exceptionally helpful. We worked with Broadway Advocacy Coalition. We couldn't get cell phone footage of inside Prince George's County Jail, but we had their words. So we we in partnership with the folks on the inside and all of these organizers conceived of this idea of kind of reconceptualizing the lawsuit altogether and in in drawing out those words and breathing life into those words. And so we had a range of social justice advocates, public defenders, um, organizers, people with platforms who were amazing enough to take part. You included Jesse Williams, Fiona Apple, singer-songwriter. And within a week, that audience of one went to an audience of over 4 million. Within a week, that court watcher of one turned into the largest court watching program in the country, which continues today. Over 200 people volunteered to virtual court watch to hold actors accountable. The county wound up settling the lawsuit because of the public pressure that came from this campaign for basic truth. But one of the the real... Um, Real successes, I think, of this, and this is so much a part of what Zealous does around the country and what we hope to achieve, are the partnerships between these key allies, so defenders, civil rights lawyers, local organizers, community, are stronger than they've ever been before, and the fight for so many other justice issues has grown stronger because of this kind of galvanizing moment.
2: But listen, we're very grateful to you for doing this. You're someone who the work you're doing to help powerless people in a world where uh, if you don't have any power, forget about a lot of power, even a little power, you just get steamrolled. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Scott Heckinger. My next guest, Robert Greenwald, is the founder of Brave New Films, a nonprofit organization whose focus is investigative documentaries. Brave New Films has tackled subjects such as corporate corruption, war, and government secrets. But Robert Greenwald didn't start there. He began his career in theater and made for TV movies, and found great success earning two Golden Globe nominations, 25 Emmy nominations, and a Peabody. In 1984, Greenwald directed The Burning Bed, starring Farrah Fawcett, one of the most watched television movies in history. Based on a true story, it was a raw depiction of abuse that changed public awareness and the fight against domestic violence. Greenwald then shifted to work that would continue to make a difference, and the result was Brave New Films. Their movies, such as Outfoxed, Rupert Murdoch's War on Journalism, and Iraq for Sale, are available online and at free screenings in an effort to engage the public. Greenwald has also lectured at Harvard, addressed Capitol Hill, and testified before Congress. He's a filmmaker certainly making his mark. I asked Robert Greenwald about his background and if school was where he got his start in filmmaking. I did not. I studied uh,
3: history, and I studied philosophy, and I did go to the high school of performing arts. Right. So way back then, I um, had some connection to learning from teachers. but. Mainly for better or for worse, I don't know what your experience has been. It's been a kind of experiential learning on the job, making huge mistakes and hopefully learning from them and
2: having some f- unusual and varied experiences. When you were at performing arts, was it acting you had originally thought about? Was that the, the goal?
3: That was the goal, and I quickly realized that I was not made to be an actor in any shape or form. So, And you left performing arts to go where? Where did you go to college? I went to uh, Antioch College for two years, and then I dropped out of Antioch College uh, to work in the theater. And I also then went to the new school, because way back then you had to be in school in order to avoid the draft.
0: Right.
2: Now— Describe some of your first experiences in the theater. Were they in New York or were they regional? What kind of work were you doing originally in the theater? In New York, uh, the theater
3: originally, I was a gopher. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, go for coffee, (laughs) go for tea, go for my script, go for any of those things. And I loved every single second of it. I worked for a wonderful director named Vanette Carroll, a woman who I had known from uh, High School of Performing Arts, and a show called Trumpets of the Lord, where I delivered the paychecks, or actually the cash, to the actors. And then at intermission, I sold albums uh, from the show. And then I tore the tickets when people came (laughs) into the theater uh, at One Sheridan Square.
2: And how long were you toiling in the theater before you decided to go to California? I was probably in the theater and
3: having a brutally difficult time uh, of it, surviving financially, uh, emotionally. It was probably three or four years, and then I was offered a job at the Mark Taper Forum uh, directing plays. And I will never forget, I was offered $200 a week which I thought was extraordinary. It Mm -hmm. provided financial security. And I went out and bought a juice mixer at the time, my first extraneous purchase. Um, But I I was on top of the world. And that brought me to California, where I worked for uh, Gordon Davidson at the Mark Taper Forum for about two years, and then transitioned to film and television, starting a company called Moonlight Productions because... My then partner, Frank von Zernick and I were literally moonlighting from the Mark
2: Taper Forum. When do you decide you want to start to hop the fence at the studio? Because apparently you talked your way onto a lot of movie sets or movie lots, correct? (laughs) How did
3: that happen? Uh, I tried. Well, as many things in life as, you know, when we look back, we see things a little differently. But I did realize as I was at the Mark Taper Forum pretty quickly that I have— certain skill sets. One skill that I absolutely do not have is working for somebody. I'm a complete failure as an employee because I always had a way, my idea of how to do it or do it differently. So I realized I really needed to sort of start something on my own so I wouldn't be in constant conflict with bosses. And so Frank and I decided to start a film, what we thought would be a film company, it quickly became a television company because television was, as I'm sure you know, was much more open to people than film, mm. which was much more uh, elitist, if you will, uh, having to have connections and having to have money. None of which Frank or I had money or connections. Uh, but TV wanted content, wanted ideas. I'm a voracious reader of everything, and so I was in heaven coming up with ideas. For what was then known as the television movie of the week.
2: Mm-hmm. What's the first movie set or what's the first studio lot you pole vault into?
3: It was Universal Studios, and what my what Frank and I would do is his little broken down car became our office, and in his trunk we kept all of our scripts and projects and books and ideas. And we would get on a payphone nearby. Generally, often there was a Howard Johnson's at Sunset Sunset Boulevard, had a lot of payphones in the men's room, by the way. <laughs> and we would often be on the payphone calling the studio and saying, oh, we're on the lot when we come see you. And then putting a hand over it when someone was flushing uh, the urinal. <laughs> it was a very, very, very high class undertaking. Um, but we would say, oh, we're right on the lot. Can we come in? And then, because it was centrally located, we'd either go to studios on the west side or go over the hill to the valley. And Universal Studios seemed to have the least security.
2: I was going to say, it must have been a very different time. Yeah.
3: And you could get on pretty easily if you smiled and talked. So we we made a lot of progress getting on the Universal lot and ultimately doing a 90-minute
2: television movie. What's the first job you get where they entrust you to direct the project? Your first directing gig was what? Uh, First
3: directing gig, which was Portrait of a Mistress with Trish Vanderveer. And I remember it fondly. It was a 90-minute movie. And because of the economics of television, the first day of shooting, literally, you started in Los Angeles, flew to San Francisco which was the location, and we're then filming at 10 or 11 o'clock that morning. What I didn't know, and subsequently I learned to be thoughtful and check, was Trish had tremendous anxieties and fears, so it was very hard for her to come out of the motorhome onto the set. Really? Seriously? Yes, seriously. Really, really bad. So I fly to San Francisco. It's the first day. Um, the director and tremendous pressures you know I've storyboarded and sketched out everything and she doesn't show up so on the first day, the first shot, I had to figure out how to shoot around her and basically get coverage of other people and then when she came on an hour or two hours later uh, make sure that I could that it would cut and work well so it was a hell of a learning experience my stomach, gets and not just telling you Ugh. the story, but, you know, I survived. This is a woman
2: that was married to George C. Scott.
3: Absolutely, yes. And he was quite a presence at times uh, when he would come around. No. So, uh,
2: yeah. So you direct that movie. What did you take away from that? You were hungry for more? You wanted to direct more?
3: Yes. Unf- unfortunately or fortunately, I've always loved telling stories. I'm not a writer, And my interest and my skill set is in directing films, so I wanted to do more, and it was a time when it was easier to get—there's a process for those folks not in the industry where you have to get approved by the network, that is, the financier. So I'd been approved as the director, I don't know how, on that first film, and that allowed me to do more uh, television movies, which I directed, and then— Within a few years, went on to do one of the most successful television movies, which was *The Burning Bed* right. with Farrah Fawcett, right. and that was a real change in the sense that then I was offered tons of movies to direct. Very successful and, film. Yeah, it no, was very let, successful.
2: Let's, let's talk about that. Insofar as you'd done a handful of films between the first one and when you'd worked with Farrah, had you done a few films? Yes. What was it like for you to work with her in terms of getting the performance you wanted? And of course, she gave a wonderful performance in the film. Most people recognize that.
3: It's interesting because, in essence, she hired me. She was attached to that film Got it. before I was. Got it. Then I was approached by the producers, John Abnett and Steve Tisch, and they said, you know, here's this project. And what they didn't tell me is tons of directors had turned it down already. But fortunately, because of my theater background, I had seen Farrah off-Broadway in Extremities. And she was very good. And I felt, hmm, there's something here. And the other thing, and you know this about stars, is they have a pretty, most of them have a pretty good sense of what they can do. And so I met with Farrah. And I felt there was a real commitment to wanting to do this story. I talked to her about I would want several weeks of rehearsal. I would want to go with her to various shelters for abused women and interviewed the women. And she was signed up for all of it. And then I think I said this even before filming or rehearsal. I said, and I don't want you surrounded by hair and makeup people after every take Tweaking and touching, and I want you to be able to and killing stay the momentum. And t- yeah, killing the momentum, killing the truth. And she was not a trained actor, so she needed the emotion, and because she didn't have the technique to recreate. Yes. And in fact, one of the best scenes in the movie when she's on the witness stand. And I, I just did it out of instinct was I kept rolling rather than saying cut and start over again. I said, go again, go again. And I wouldn't let them cut and I wouldn't let anybody yeah. come on the set. Right. And it ultimately led to, a, I think, a strong
2: and truthful moment. Mm-hmm. Was she grateful to you in the end? Did she think that you guys had accomplished something together?
3: Yeah, she was very appreciative. And then. When the f- film aired and it got, you know, more people watched it and watched the presidential debates, it got all kinds of awards. And, and it also, in a way, moved me towards where I ultimately wound up, because the social uh, impact part of it, I mean, we were getting notes from legislators, laws were getting changed. Uh, it was really quite something. And the realization of the power of storytelling to reach people and affect lives of many people throughout the country. Up until then, sort of domestic abuse was looked at as women complaining and the police didn't take it seriously and legislators didn't take it seriously. So she and I and John and Steve all felt quite a bit of pride in being able to do that.
2: Most people assume that the ultimate goal is to make films, to make feature films. And although that thinking that films are automatically better than television has eroded substantially in the last 20 years, obviously. And, and some of the best acting and some of the best directing is being done in streaming TV and even in network TV. Uh, and movies are not necessarily the Shangri-La that people have always thought it was, you know. Uh, but nonetheless, you decide you want to get into the feature film business. How did that start? What was the first feature you shot? Maybe it was Xanadu. do right. And whose idea was that? Not mine. Right. No, no, I know. <laughs> but listen, we all have our... Uh,
3: it was Larry Gordon and Joel Silver who right. hired me. And Olivia, I think... No, they didn't have Olivia yet. It was Larry and Joel hired me. Um, and I thought it was would be fun. I love musicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uncle is Michael Kidd, director and choreographer. Mm-hmm. So I grew up watching him work. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I decided, I don't know that I decided so much to do features, but I thought this was an interesting project. And um, so I went into the lion's den of a big studio movie, and um, I emerged uh, barely standing.
2: Right, right. I'm told that nine eleven. Uh, I I want you to clarify this for me, mm-hmm. was what helped to... Build the next bridge for, for you, which was to basically give up making entertainment films in, in, in for theater or television and go into the the business you're in now. Is that accurate that was the timeline around nine eleven? And what happened?
3: Yes, in fact, it was it's actually very accurate and and very specific. So a couple of things all came together. One of them, most was nine eleven. And as you've, I'm sure, experienced, there was tremendous pain and tremendous fear. But our grief as a country, as a people, so quickly shifted from grief and pain to rage and revenge, I found it, frankly, quite terrifying and particularly terrifying because of my four children who affect so many of the decisions that I've made in my life, that I make in my life now. And I felt a strong sense of what, if anything, could I do? And around the same time, my father died. And like all parents, like myself as a parent, uh, not perfect as a parent. And I remember very specifically, waiting to get up and speak in our living room where we had a little memorial for him. And I'm thinking, what am I going to say that's not bullshit, but that is real? And it really hit me that one of the wonderful things he passed on to me was this notion that uh, you gain by doing something above and beyond your own narrow financial interest, assuming you're fortunate and comfortable enough, which... I was. And so at that moment, it all kind of came together. I didn't know that I was going to start a company, that I was going to make all these documentaries, but I did know I wanted to do something as difficult as it was, and it is, is, that would have impacts in a way above and beyond somebody walking out of a movie theater and saying, oh, that was fun or not fun.
2: 9-11... I was doing a play out on Long Island, and it was the first year that Bay Street Theater and Sag Harbor had decided to extend their season beyond the normal summer months and the summer crowd and go into the month of September. And we were going to run through the month of September for two or three weeks, and our first invited dress was 9-11 itself. Wow. And uh, we canceled that performance. Uh, We all Mm -hmm. said that we were not in any emotional condition to go and do that. Then the next day was our first ticketed preview. Mm -hmm. And uh, the theater was small. And when you left the theater from the dressing rooms, you had to pass through the lobby. And a handful of people would wait for us. And with uh, tremendous sadness in their face, they would say, thank you so much for giving us something, for coming here and doing this, and giving us something to take our minds off this horrible event because it was so immersive, you know, you just couldn't get away from it for months and months. I had a woman who lived in my building who was Jewish, and she turned to me and she said, now New York is like Israel. I'll never forget she said that, like like we were going to have to live now in a condition of fear and in a defensive posture on a kind of constant level. Now, the United States was no longer invulnerable to this kind of thing. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I got to get out of here. I thought, i got to move out of New York, and I was really, really terrified. I didn't really think much about changing my career, but you do change your career, and were your politics fairly concretized and you were fairly kind of uh, inclined where you were going to go once you started making a different kind of programming, once your company, uh, Brave New Films, comes into being and you're going to make a different kind of content. Did you know where you were headed because you've already been dabbling in that politically? Well, I knew that
3: some of the most satisfying experiences when I've been in the commercial for-profit world had been true stories based on things like the burning bed and a bunch of others, children being locked up in prison, unemployment, inequality, the whole series of things, that those are the ones that gave me the greatest satisfaction. So I wanted to do something that would be hopefully meaningful and that also where I could be challenged and use whatever skills I have to the best of my ability. And most, you know, a key piece of it was by this point, because I'd been very successful in commercial television, I had enough money so that if I was careful and if I was thoughtful I wouldn't have to pay myself a salary. And that was a big, big deal because, I, you know, the hardest part of my job when I started and to this day is fundraising. I'm lousy at it. It's difficult. If I had to raise money to pay myself, I, I don't think I could ever do it. But fortunately, you know, because of those circumstances, and for 15 or 16 years now, I've been able to be a full-time volunteer running uh, Brave New Films and raising money for the staff that, of course, needs to be paid. And I did um, the general approach to around equality and civil rights and uh, national security were all there. I think the work that I've done and The amazing people I've met, whether it was when I flew to Pakistan and interviewed drone survivors or when I went to Afghanistan and interviewed women there or people who, you know, taking on the NRA around the country or voter suppression. I mean, just it's so extraordinary the people you come in contact with and you're able to have a connection at a much deeper level than a, you know, a cocktail party or a casual acquaintance.
2: Now, when you start, because I'm assuming now if nine eleven is, you know, kind of the benchmark there, so you've been doing this for 20 years, roughly, Brave New Films. In the beginning, were there people you knew you wanted to reach out and you were going to form a staff or the beginnings of a staff with people you had worked with previously is it you and a couple young people around your kitchen table what is brave new films day 1
3: there was no brave new films day 1 it was the furthest thing from my mind what I thought was I wanted to make a movie about the Iraq war and that we were not being told the truth and I thought well let's let's try to do it so I found one or two other people Many, I mean, the people around me at the time, as you know, the agents and the lawyers or whatever, tried to talk me out of it because there was no money and they define themselves by money. My brother, way back when, gave me a wonderful little book called Wealth Addiction. And it talks about people addicted to making money above and beyond what they need. Mm. And it almost becomes an addiction. What is an addiction? Never enough, always thinking about getting more. Mm. And it you know it really stayed with me, so when I made this decision to try to do a documentary about the the lies and the distortions around the Iraq war, I just reached out to essentially a version of what you're saying a couple of folks who I hired an editor and I hired a researcher and we began and that was the start and then when we finished the film um So I hadn't really thought about this. How are we going to get people to see it, right? Mm -hmm. So we had an alliance with uh, one of the local radio stations, and I remember this so well. And they booked the Lemley Theater in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to the opening, the one opening night, the only night, driving in the car on, I think it's 2nd Street, on the way to the theater. And there's a line around the block And I turned to my wife and my daughters and I say, oh, shit, somebody's having a premiere tonight and it's going to get all the attention and we won't even be able to get into the theater. Well, it turned out it was the line to see the Iraq film because Mm -hmm. there was such hunger. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, people came up to me and it wasn't. And you've had this experience just, oh, it was a good film. It was thank you for making that movie and telling that story. And that was heroin. I mean, that got me me hooked.
2: Filmmaker and activist Robert Greenwald. If you're enjoying this conversation, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend and follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, I talk with Robert Greenwald about how the burning bed and 9-11 led him to bring his storytelling skills to another platform.
0: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Since Brave New Film's founding in 2004, Robert Greenwald has made numerous films with a strong political message. I wanted to know what frustrates him about politics in our country today.
3: Well, I feel a, a mixture. There's a part of me that, despite it all, uh, and despite being a New Yorker in my heart and soul, I am optimistic. On the other hand, we've been working on voter suppression. Started, we did a, a film with the help of many folks about voter suppression in uh, Georgia. We had 2000 and 20 free screenings before the 2020 elections. uh, And it continues. We're working on a new version of it now, suppressed and sabotaged. And Alec, I tell you, at times I don't believe I'm in this country. I mean, this breaks my heart, honestly. Mm -hmm. The number of people who died, who died fighting for voting rights. And here we are again. And the fact that some elected officials can justify what they're doing around suppressing, around sabotaging. It's breaking my heart to hear these stories all over the country of legislation being passed, people being intimidated, people being bullied. And I feel at times like I'm either in another country or in another time period. And I see that as kind of an overlay of so many of the problems and challenges If elected officials with a straight face can get up there and say, no, you should not have drop boxes, no, you should not have vote by mail, it uh, baffles me how they can live with themselves.
2: You have quite a range of topics you've covered with Brave New Films, from 2004 in the war in Iraq, outfoxed, Rupert Murdoch's war on journalism, documentaries about Walmart— War profiteering in Iraq, Rethinking Afghanistan in 2009. What are you working on now? Do you have something? Can you discuss that? Yeah.
3: It's going to be called uh, Suppressed and Sabotaged 2022. And the goal is to have it done in the spring. We put together a, you know, again, we do two things, right? We make the content. And as important, maybe even more important, is the distribution. Because there's no point doing what we do if people aren't seeing it and if there isn't an impact. So we have study guides, we have actions that we ask people to do. And so if you have thousands of free screenings, it's hundreds of thousands of people being reached, some of whom are then going to be moved to do something about it. So right now we're heavily focused on the suppressed and sabotage. We're interviewing people around the country. If any of you are uh, listeners have stories of suppression. They sh- They can contact me, robert, at org. We're looking for more stories. We have some experts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be uh, as important, you know, because it's big picture stuff. And the common thread, Alec, and not that we're always successful with all of the films, is... I try to do two things. I try, number one, to put a face on policy because that's what film can do, that books don't do and studies don't do and think tanks don't do. We humanize it. And then we try to connect the dots so that people understand it's systemic. Walmart was not about a bad boss. It was about a system of greed based on a certain kind of capitalist where anything is okay. Similarly with the drone movie, if we stopped using drones today, there still would be issues around the military industrial complex. So I try very hard and it's and you don't want to preach to people. You don't want to do spinach or homework. So how do you tell those stories that are deeply personal, that expose the systemic workings and that people want to see and energize them rather than have them wanting to slit their wrists? We really, for a small group, we're putting more time and energy into reaching people because how do we take a clip and how do you change it so it will reach uh, 100,000 people on TikTok and how do you change it so it'll reach 200,000 on YouTube? So our job is to reach the different audiences in different ways that they consume the material, not to change it, Mm -hmm. but to reformat or change the length. Yes.
2: Well, I'm proud to know you. I'm proud to know you. Thank you very much for coming on with us, and thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks. Be well. My thanks to Robert Greenwald and Scott Heckinger. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios and produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeice, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio.
1: Right rug flooring.